Hello, this is Jason Solomons and welcome to another fast-talking, shoulder-shrugging edition of Sounds Jewish from The Guardian. In this month's show, does Ed Miliband, the first Jewish leader of the Labour Party, feel at ease with his Jewishness? And should it matter? A woman on a mission to tackle what she sees as sexism rife among Britain's Jews. And the close-knit and claustrophobic world of northwest London, as depicted in author Francesca Siegel's debut novel, The Innocents. This is Sounds Jewish from The Guardian. Shalom, shalom. And joining me in the podcast studio this month are Raphael Baer, former Observer journalist, now political editor of The New Statesman. Welcome back to the building. Hi there, I'm very pleased to be back. They let you in? They did, although they didn't let, didn't let me have a pass, so I had to sort of humbly beg admittance. Right, well we, we're very glad to have you. Do you miss it? I miss the air conditioning, actually. It's much cooler here than my normal office, <laughs> right. so that's, that's reassuring. Good, well you, you can, you can take, a, take a breath. Relax, and we'll talk to you later about uh, the uh, amazing edition of The New Statesman, which you uh, have been uh, associated with. Who speaks for British Jews? Today, you do, Raphael. Well, well, and we like the adjective amazing applied to anything we do. So. That's good. Put that on the post next week. Uh, Francesca Siegel, welcome. Congratulations to you. Your debut novel, The Innocents, published by Chatter and Windows a couple of weeks ago. Uh, yes, thank May the you. 3rd. And you're about to go to America, is that right? Yes, I'm going in a couple of days. It comes out on the 5th of June there, so I'm uh, doing a bit of a tour. And they, they're going to... They, I mean, there's an American in the book as well, so... They there kinda, is, yes, so and they, they like that. They like that, did they? Yeah, you didn't put that in just for the US audience. Oh, I did, I Good. did, and it worked. Good eye on sales. Well nice. done, Francesca. Wish you the best of luck with that. And Laura Marks is here, founder and director of Mitzvah Day and very newly elected as senior vice president of the Board of Deputies of British Jews. Mazel tov, I suppose. It's a good title, isn't it? It is a very good title. <laughs> it's very long. Um, do you have a special ceremony for that? What, do, would you go up on a stage? Do you oh, bow? I, I don't think so. I think it's more pragmatic than that. I think it's about uh, getting on with the work, actually. Yeah, but I mean, it's, it's, um, it's a, it was a, a wonderful election victory. Did you campaign hard and long? Uh, it was a great honour. It was a great honour. And uh, I feel that uh, what I've got to do over the next three years is really give a lot to the Jewish community. Um, I, did I campaign hard? Quite hard, I suppose. Um, Were you surprised? I mean, it was billed as a shock victory. I was, I was knocked over, actually. Um, I, thought I, might, I thought I might get through. Uh, I didn't expect to come top. And I think it showed a, um, a real push for not so much change, but revitalisation. Well, you will tra- blaze a trail, no doubt, Laura, so congratulations on that. Uh, today we'll be grappling with uh, the subject of British-Jewish identity. Uh, are you feeling very Jewish today? How are you feeling, Raph? Well, British, I was about to say, you, you've got a group of people uh, who are, to some degree, presumably Jewish, to sit in a room and talk about Jewish identity. You could probably leave and let everyone just get on with it. We'd still be here in about a week's time talking about it. <laughs> We'll start with the new statesman, uh, where the subject of British Jewish identity was very much the focus for an extraordinary edition of the magazine, of which uh, Raphael is the political editor. Featuring pieces ranging from Anthony Julius to Linda Grant, from Ben Freud to David Baddiel, it's a serious and considered look at the British Jewish experience, both past and present. Particularly fascinating is a column written by Ed Miliband, leader of the Labour Party, confessing to his own Jewishness. 
Raphael, the political editor of The New Statesman, why did The New Statesman decide to devote like almost the entire issue to British Jews? There are a couple of columns in here that aren't Jewish. One of them One of which is immediately is by me, because I write the politics column, and that week in Westminster there just didn't seem to be very much tremendously Jewish going on. Anyone listening to this show, and we, we have dealt with this before, there is a bit of history, which we should say, uh, from The New Statesman and the Jewish community. Uh, many people will remember the controversial edition of about a decade ago, where the front cover had a gold star of David uh, impaling a super Union flag above the strapline, a kosher conspiracy. Yes, there's I, no, I mean, there's no doubt that this is a, I mean, in my opinion and in the opinion of everyone currently at the New Statesman, a deep, deep shameful episode in the magazine. Are history. there people still there? There is no one, as, as far as I know, certainly there's not, it's not the same editor, the same editorial staff, there's no one there now, or even the same proprietor. It's actually changed hands a couple of times since then. And the magazine has published a clear, uh, as far as I know, I hope, well, I certainly hope, very fulsome apology. I can't remember the, the wording of it. Just if you can set up what that kosher conspiracy posited. Well, the, the, it, was a, it was one of these pieces that purported to look at the pro-Israel Zionist lobby and how effective it is in influencing British policy. This was under the Blair government. Um, yeah, it was 10 years ago, more or less. Um, and as is so often the case with these pieces, when they're written from a certain, I would say, kind of hard left perspective, it veers very casually into the old area of conflating notions of Zionism, pro-Israeli political agitation, uh, Jewishness, in a fairly casual way that, as well, a lot of people listening to this podcast, and we all know, can routinely dip into the old tropes and images of anti-Semitism. Now, so that in itself, as an intellectual hazard, um, should have been obvious to anyone, um, and is pretty toxic, to then illustrate it on the cover with an image that so flagrantly borrows from exactly that sort of noxious intellectual tradition, in my opinion, was completely unforgivable. And... The defence at the time was that there was a sort of terrible misunderstanding and everyone got a bit carried away with the imagery and no one had thought about it. I mean, my own personal view, and it's easy for me to say this because I wasn't there at the time um, and I've joined the New Statesman only last year. My own view is that anyone who has even a passing acquaintance with sort of middle European history of the last hundred years will have looked at that cover and thought, you are plundering the box of anti-Semitic imagery here run a mile. Did you refer to that issue when, when coming out with this new issue? We as were a kind of acutely conscious of that. I mean, it's, you couldn't, it'd be hard to overstate how conscious. I wouldn't say, you know, you couldn't, it'd be slightly absurd to say that we wanted to do this as a way of sort of expiating that from the magazine. But there was such a profound awareness of how important it was for the new statesman to sort of to get it right as a considered sensitive understanding mm. of the British Jewish experience. Well, there. I would say that you, I mean, you have. I mean, you've got David Baddiel, Will Self, Michael Rosen, who's writing about uh, this sort of communist child as he's writing about mm. different political slants. Uh, then you have cultural essays, Rachel Lichtenstein, for example, uh, and, and Linda Grant writing about her, and Anthony Clavain even on, um, and, on the... And uh, Edward Miliband. Edward Miliband, who, um, who was obviously sort of quite a famous person, uh, writing about his Judaism. Uh, the headline is... My my father showed me the patriotism of the refugee. So he he's, he restates his Britishness while also restating his Jewishness. Uh, is, is, it, is it a smart political move, this column, or is it from the heart? Well, now putting on my hat as political editor, uh, I think it was a necessary thing to do. And I would say that precisely because I think uh, there was sensitivity around in the Labour Party and around Ed Miliband about 
Ken Livingstone's failure to win the London mayoralty and the role that, to some extent, not massively, but I think not and sort of negligibly either, Ken's ambivalent, to say the least, relationship with the London Jewish community played in that and a feeling that there was a certain need to show that Ed, as a Jewish leader of the party, understood those sensitivities. Uh, does um, does a politician opening up like this, just in, in the political mm. state, you know, it it, 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 it humanises them somewhat. I mean, it, it, but it, one could sort of say, oh, he's playing the, the Holocaust card and kind of looking for a looking for some sympathy. Yes, there. I think th- there's been a, there's a wider debate around that, isn't it? I mean, remember Blair famously saying, you know, or having being a man of of some profound faith and being very sensitive about dealing with it. And it was you know Campbell, as the Campbell said, you know, we don't do God, and we certainly don't like politicians to wear their religion on their sleeves in a way that the Americans feel they ought to, um, and particularly when your religion doesn't involve actually believing in God, as is the case with Ed Miliband, uh, it's just hazardous. Um, to be honest, I would say also there's a tricky issue when you're a leader of a Labour Party where on the left there is such passionate feeling around the Israel-Palestine conflicts that you the, the reluctance to even go into the room where that conversation is being shouted about must be quite profound. So in that sense, I think, you know, I, mean, he, I think he was pretty cautious on that. But he does, he does mention it, and he says he supports a two-state solution, which is what the, your magazine Which is what you have to does. say. I yeah. mean, you have to, you know, he, I think, you know, if I had a criticism of that piece, it would be that he tiptoed up to that question and then very promptly walked away from it again, which is sort of fair enough. That's not the piece he wanted to write, but, you know, that is what politically would be problematic for a British Jewish prime minister. Let's and face it. It's um, it's a kind of uh, as we mentioned the culture. He says he's a Woody Allen fan. There's a mm. paragraph where he refers to his grandma cooking him chicken soup and, and matzo balls, mm. which I don't think we call them matzo balls in this country. Well, we call them knedler. Knedler, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and he he knows a few Yiddish phrases, though I've never seen him throw any of them in. You'd love to see that, wouldn't you? You'd wouldn't love it? to. That would that would that would that would be a game changer. If he if, if, he, if he replaced, if he didn't say omni shambles yeah, and he said uh, a poroch, yeah. I would love that in the big house, uh, Laura. Um, th- is that watering, Laura Marks, is this watering down a form of Jewishness and sort of making it an easy cultural chicken soup, if you like? Well, I, I rather applaud him for writing this article, actually. I I think, um, you know, you, you can see that he was brought up with a, a difficult relationship with his Judaism. And I think it's quite brave of him to come out in this way and, and quite honest. Reading that, do you has it altered your perception of, of Ed Miliband in any way? Um... I think it has... I, I respect him for doing it. I think it was a, um, a brave move. I think coming back to knowing who you are is very important because, you know, we've got David Cameron um, and Nick Clegg, you know, very English, traditional, grew up, know who they are, went to Westminster, the whole shebang. Yeah, they can't write this sort of stuff. They can't write from the heart like this. Um, and you almost feel that sort of... As a Jew, of course, I'm biased, but I feel that this is real sort of... Um, I understand this, I relate to this, I understand those sort of feelings of, of, of stress that are going on that come through in that article. Um, whereas with someone like Cameron and Clegg, we understand where they're coming from, what they stand for, and we think it's a much sort of cleaner, easier thing or to we, Or we think we do as Jews. We kind of think, well, we could we never think, have had that privilege. Exactly. We couldn't have played tennis at exactly. the So easy to come from that sort of a background, we think. I think, I think that's, um, that's an essential point about the one of the what's going on in politics at the moment actually is that there is a long ongoing crisis of confidence in in the whole political establishment and it goes back to before the expenses scandal but that was a very important part of it people just thinking they are all crooks and villains and 
no one this is something that people talk about they say the, the emptying stadium just people that the game is going on on the pitch but people are just filtering out the doors they're not paying attention anymore and in that climate the one of the most precious commodities in politics at the moment is authenticity mm. now Cameron actually had that for a while even though he was posh and, and well spoken and the rest of it people sort of thought well he is authentically that thing the problem that Ed has Miliband has, has had is, is achieving his own authenticity you know um, because he doesn't necessarily look like your obvious candidate to be prime minister and and this I'm sure is part of a deliberate attempt to construct that for him but because it is really him it works to an extent I, think. I found Ed's piece really interesting and I was interested in Laura saying that it really made her warm to him because I did enjoy reading it but I thought it was for me I think he it felt as though he owned up to only as much Jewishness as he would be tarred with anyway tarred with sort of by people who would be perhaps a little suspicious of somebody who might have dual loyalties in that role or anyone who might be sort of concerned about a British Jewish leader. But I, I think with the, there's a lot of talk about the Kanaidlach and the Woody Allen and nothing that's in any way different or in any way in, inaccessible to someone who isn't Jewish. And so in that sense, I mean, maybe that's the truth and the full extent of how he feels about his Judaism. But it... it it was a very safe piece. Coming back to that, the point about Ken and, and the piece, though, I think you know, there is one of the problems uh, that Ed Miliband faces and that Ken faced is that there is a suspicion that on the left fringe of politics now, anti-Semitism is tolerated in the way that perhaps it used to be on the right fringe of politics. But actually, the danger zone, the, the, the sort of fertile territory where some pretty ugly attitudes towards Judaism are lurking is actually where a kind of anti-Zionism that thinks it's part of anti-colonialism, anti-imperialism, but is actually raiding just old racist tropes is tolerated. And again, I mean, Ed Miliband clearly didn't want to go there. But I think if he really wants to, as it were, win over the Jewish community, the next stage is to come out and say that. This is Sounds Jewish, sponsored by the Jewish Community Centre for London for The Guardian. The Jewish woman may be stereotypically cast as assertive and pushy, and there's no shortage of Jewish women at the top of their profession, certainly. But when it comes to taking on the top-notch jobs within Jewish organisations, it's a different story. Laura Marks, can you tell us more? You've chaired the Commission on Women in Jewish Leadership. You're now uh, Senior Vice President of the Board of Deputies, as we said before. Was female underrepresentation the reason that you fought to get representation yourself? There is a underrepresentation of women in Jewish leadership. Now, we have to differentiate between religious leadership and communal leadership because clearly in the Jewish world, you've got the Orthodox community, which uh, don't have women rabbis, in very simple terms, and you've got the progressive movements, which do have women rabbis. So uh, the job of the commission was not to look at that. That's too core, if you like, in the Jewish world uh, to have a commission look at. That's, that goes to the very roots, the very foundation of Judaism. Um, we were looking at something much more straightforward, which is why are women so underrepresented in communal leadership in the Jewish community? So when you mean communal, so we're not talking about, as you say, the religious structure. Can you give me an example of exactly what, yes. what that means? So the Jewish world, as we know, has got a gazillion organisations and a gazillion things going on. And that's its strength, if you like. Um, and so we've got uh, caring organisations, cultural organisations, social action organisations, all sorts of organisations. 
and leadership organisations and um, bodies that represent the community and bodies that interact with government. Is this on local and and international uh, levels? And what you find is that women are very underrepresented. And when you compare the... uh, the Jewish norm to the third sector or the charitable norm, which is the sort of sector we operate in, you find that women in the Jewish community leadership is about twenty five percent, and in the in the non Jewish world it's about near fifty percent. Really, I mean, interestingly enough, anecdotally, mm. I, I was on the board of the UK Jewish Film Festival, which was mm-hmm. run by Judy Ironside, a woman, yeah. and worked at Jewish Book Week, which is run by a woman. So I, I, I assume that there was there were there were many of these women. There are lots of successful women operating in the field, and often in the cultural or arts world, as you say. Um, But when you look at the uh, positions of major influence and political power, that's where you find particularly few women. And if you look at the the larger organisations with the big turnover and therefore the ones with influence, that's where you really find the lack of women. I'm interested that you made drew that distinction, which I can see for practical reasons has to be drawn between the sort of religious theological underpinning of what the role of women is and their representation in the community. Mm. But but surely they sort of there is some cultural reason why the the former the religious side might infuse the latter and if you're of talking course. about what the role what role women traditionally have then that will culturally become a reason why they're held back in other areas. Of course, and can, can I go back to that in one second because it's a really important point. But let me just start off by saying why all this matters, because it doesn't matter. Well, it does matter from the point of view of equality and democracy and all those sorts of things. Clearly that matters. But it also matters uh, fundamentally from the perspective of the long-term development of the Jewish community. And actually, when you read all this stuff in The New Statesman and you read, say, um, Ed Miliband's article, and if Judaism gets watered down to matzo balls or to, um, you know, Friday night at grandma's occasionally, that's not enough. So there's got to be something more solid that we base our community on if the community is going to survive. And one of the things we've got to base it on is inclusion. And the inclusion's got to be there, not just because philosophically we need inclusion, but actually because we're a very small community. If you take out the Haredi community, we're an even smaller Uh, but the Haredi community is actually growing. That's right. But, but where women are not allowed. Well, in some ways they are, but um, that's a slightly different issue. Uh, But in the mainstream Jewish community, if you are disempowering and uh, and therefore the women are disconnecting, who's going to be left to run the community? Who, in 20, 30 years' time, if Judaism is watered down to matzo balls, and if the women don't want to get involved, and the women, of course, are role-modelling and bringing up the children, who is going to say, our community really matters, I've got to step up to the plate, I've got to do something about it, and then that brings me right back to the beginning of your question is, did that influence my standing? Yes, I'm going to board? ask you to do an Ed Miliband here and, and, and take the political into the personal. Yes. And say, why did you, why yes. are you so enthused about so it? So definitely it did. Because as the chair of this commission, I'm saying to women, you've got to stand up and be counted. You've got to take a lot of this responsibility yourselves. Um, there is an organisational issue, and we'll talk about that. Um, but there's also an issue that the women don't want to do it. And so I just thought, well, I better show the way, really. And so I stepped into the fray. Was there an incident that made you um, say, right, I'm going to do this? Yes. Um, but actually, the incident wasn't something bad that happened. It was somebody coming up to me and saying, well, you know, you're, you know are you really going to take this seriously? Because here's a way you can do this. So 
and the timing was right. The Board of Deputies elections were only every three years, and it was it was six months ago. So it was, and the commission was underway. So yes, it, the, the timing was right for me. Um, but I really do feel that I have to role model, and I'm at the age of my life where I should be role modeling, and I have a 16-year-old daughter, and I have sons as well. And I think that if I'm not prepared to stand up and do it, then who is? So explain to, to, to listeners and I suppose to us as well mm. the, the, the central paradox to which Raphael referred to as well in orthodox synagogues mm. um, women are not allowed to take the top jobs yes they can organise I suppose kiddish uh, and do I suppose I suppose homemaking activities around the synagogue mm. but what are the rules are that prevents them advancing any further because that seems to me a key problem there's a big issue in the more traditional part of the community which is that um, women feel very disempowered now, it's a difficult one for me to go into, and the reason that the commission hasn't gone there is because the commission's cross-communal. And what I'm absolutely determined we won't do is start bashing the orthodox. That's not not the agenda, mm-hmm. because it's a cross-communal problem, this one. The women on the boards are not all progressive women, believe me. Um, so it's not only the orthodox women who are not stepping up to the plate, it's all the women who are not stepping up to the plate. But having said that, there is a particular issue in the Orthodox world. And when I say Orthodox, I mean traditional world. I'm not talking about the strictly Orthodox, um, which is um, an exclusion, effectively, from Jewish life, in many ways, from bat mitzvah onwards. Um, And there's also an institutional issue, which is that in the United Synagogue, women are not allowed to chair their synagogues. Now, that's quite a big problem because what does that say about women? Uh, Even though there are quite a lot of women who are called vice chair and there's no chair to get around that problem, Hmm. uh, it's a nonsense because it's the role modelling and what it says is so important. Now, Laura, you've been very clear, very inspirational, uh, I I think, talking about this issue. Uh, Now you are Senior Vice President of the Board of Jewish Deputies of the UK. Um, What are you going to do about it? I'm very new to my job. And I'm very new to the board. So I'm not going to stand here and say I'm going to do X, Y, and Z because A, um, that wouldn't be appropriate, and B, I don't want to fail. Uh, Never over-promise and under-deliver if you can avoid it. You don't look like you fail very often to me. Well, so um, what I'm going to do, I'm going to start off by having done done what I've done, and I'm going to stand up and say on this particular issue, if I can do it, women can do it. There's a lot of women who are, for example, working part-time or have got young children or who are newly retired who are inspirational, highly educated, great achievers, Jewish. And they need to be finding the opportunities in the community to make their mark. Adam and Rachel are childhood sweethearts and have been together since Israel camp. And like most of their friends from Temple Fortune, North London, life is going pretty much to plan. Down to the details of their planned wedding the following year. Annual winter holidays in Elat with all the familiar faces from Temple Fortune and the Northern Line. All goes predictably until Rachel's unconventional and damaged cousin Ellie appears on the scene. Before we talk about the novel, it's The Innocents by our guest today, Francesca Siegel. Can you read us an excerpt, Francesca? This is from a bit quite near the beginning um, when um, Adam and Rachel, as you said, are engaged and they're planning this wedding and Rachel and her mother insist that it takes years to plan a wedding and they need all the time they can possibly muster and Adam is trying to convince her, perhaps not with any great conviction, that they should just run away um, and elope and do away with all the um, catering. 
So convinced was she of the correct path for everything that she was not even aware that there was an alternative, he thought bitterly and felt suddenly despairing. Most of the future guests at his own future nuptials knew with a fair degree of certainty what they would be eating at the festivities, roast beef au jus with baby vegetables, knew the flowers they would be gazing at while they ate it, cream tea roses in square vases of matte white ceramic, knew the approximate attire of the other attendees, and knew that one of the three bands who performed at London's classier Jewish functions would provide the soundtrack. Why did they have to chug through every benchmark, every occasion, every ceremony, as if their lives were one long, snaking, predetermined conga line? He could almost see the endless procession of dancers ahead, could feel the sweating hands of those behind him weighing heavily on his shoulders as they bumped and shuffled through the steps. Surely it didn't have to be like this. Why shouldn't they escape from Hampstead Garden suburb and marry somewhere else, just the two of them? Francesca, thank you very much for that excerpt from The Innocents. Uh, did you grow up in, uh, in that area, in Temple Fortune? I did. I grew up in Golders Green. And that closeness which you described there, should they just want to run away? Have you felt that? You felt both hemmed in and wanted to get out? Well, I imagine, perhaps this is just me justifying myself, but I imagine everyone's felt it at some time. It's an idyllic place to grow up in this very cosy world. And then, I, for me, I reached my late 20s and thought, oh, I need to breathe a little bit. And what did you do? Well, I ran away to New York for a bit. <laughs> There's no Jews there, you're fine. No Jews, none. I'm <laughs> uh, the, safe. The, the, you start with a quote from Edith Wharton from uh, The Age of Innocence, uh, a, a book I know and, and, and a film adaptation I know, of course, starring uh, uh, Daniel Day-Lewis and uh, Winona Ryder, yes. made by Martin Scorsese, who's not Jewish at all. But that, uh, they're very good at uh, the claustrophobia of New England society. Were, yes. you, were you deliberately mirroring the two? With your title there? Um, yes. Well, the book is actually very loosely based um, on The Age of Innocence. Um, and, um, and there is something in that novel and in that film, which is actually a very faithful adaptation um, of the novel, um, that felt very familiar, um, a sort of very close, interwoven, supportive, claustrophobic, sometimes parochial and ridiculous world. Yeah, I mean, the, the, what, what, what is... The, the ace of your book is the detail, the closeness. Did you think, well, no, unless you grew up there, you won't understand it? Because for me, you don't hold back on any of the specific details. No, and I, I hope it's not alienating. I hope it's it's sort of introducing people to something. And also, I think, because the core of that story, the dilemma of sort of choosing between one's own path and perhaps what one's family wants for you, or I, I think that's such a universal story. Um, that hopefully that sort of transcends the context. Well, let's see. I'm not going to break out very far because we're going to stay around, A, the podcast studio, and B, sort of, I suppose, North London Jews here. But, Laura Marks, you've, you've been reading The Innocence. Did, did it chime with you, even even down to the wedding plans? Uh, I had a Jewish wedding, and we. my, my husband always jokes, you know, that... Uh, the, the obsession with what colour the napkins are and whether they're going to match the... I, I get it, but I don't think... Uh, that's particularly different from a non-Jewish wedding. It's just we do it culturally slightly differently. Um, and uh, and the book allows us to laugh at what we do internally um, because it picks it apart in great detail and therefore it allows us to, to laugh at ourselves. I mean, I'd be very curious to know what a non-Jewish reaction to it is um, because it's it's... it's it sort of stereotypes us. It's a modern stereotyping of Northwest London. And 
so as a Jew, I can laugh at it and feel slightly uncomfortable with it in a funny sort of a way. But I'm curious to know how non-Jewish people have reacted to the book and uh, whether they've thought that it was negative perception, uh, a, a negative way of portraying London Jews or whether... Uh, they don't see it that way. Well, I certainly... I mean, I didn't see it as a stereotype, actually. I thought I, I sort of held back and and I, I portrayed what I thought was actually quite a faithful portrait of, of, of what is only a very small part of a British Jewish community. Um, but in terms of what non-Jews think, I've had... I mean, none of the people, my agent, the publisher, the publisher's readers, no-one who's been involved in the production of this book apart from me is Jewish. Mm. Um, and they all feel... Um, quite warm and positive about it. And actually one of the other publishers who, in the end I didn't go with, but who was lovely, one of the readers there wrote a note saying, I, I'm Muslim and I grew up in London and this is my life. Yeah. I think that's my experience, certainly, that of, I mean, my I grew family. up very much on the, on the periphery of the North London Jewish community. Not, my family weren't particularly engaged and we sort of pretty much abandoned any practice of religion fairly early on. Um, so, but I was um, sort of aware of, of it and participated um, partially in it. And But my experience is that people who have grown up in other immigrants or second-generation immigrant faith communities, you immediately have something in common. There are so many sort of analogous experiences, whether it's the attitude to... I mean, a very good school friend of mine is Jane and, and, and the, um, the attitudes there to marrying outside the faith are so profoundly similar or practically identical to those in the Jewish community that, you know, I have no doubt that non-Jews will find plenty. To well, exactly. I mean, if you, uh, Gurinder Chadha, who's a, an Indian filmmaker here, her biggest influence was Jack Rosenthal's The Mitzvah Boy and Alan Parker's The Evacuees about Jewish experience, just simply before, because they were on the British screens before Asian stories were, and she thought, well, I'll do the same, but for Bend It Like Beckham, etc., and Barge on the Beach. So she would uh, she would t- totally appreciate your, your, your book. She's probably going to try and option it already, actually. Well, <laughs> and, and I think... Background beneath it is very much Northwest London, but actually, you know, I didn't. It's not a book about Jews. The story, you know, that's the tapestry beneath it. But it is just a book. It is a love story. It is a love story, and it's just a book, you know, about people, about about London, really. Yes, and your your father, Eric Siegel, the late uh, author, he wrote, I suppose, the the love story called Love Story, uh, which wasn't they weren't Jewish in that. But they weren't. Uh, no, it was quite although, waspy, although actually. Jenny was supposed to be Jewish, and then at the last minute he made her Italian because that was a little bit more palatable Marketing to the audience at the time. Better actresses. But I, uh, you know, I, I never set out to write something like my father, or you know, no, I, that would be awful. Thing to try, to try, well, to try and match and, and to try and live up to. Well, I mean, which is impossible anyway. Yeah. So, but I've done something quite different. I think I you'd think. be very proud, wouldn't you? I hope. Has anyone approached you for a film option yet? Uh, it's been optioned for television. It actually. has, for yes. TV. That's exciting. It is, it's yeah. very exciting. That's all for this month, Sounds Jewish. But before we head out of the studio, a quick word about two events for your diary. The first ever Israeli film and television festival, Seret, is happening in mid-June. And the JCC's Big Midsummer Fest is on the 17th of June. An evening of music, conversation, wine, film, food, everything. See the Sounds Jewish page for more details. It's at the Camden Arts Centre. Thanks to my guest, Francesca Siegel. Good luck with that novel and the US tour. Thank you. Let us know what they think of it over there. Uh, Raphael Baer and Laura Marks, thanks too to our sponsors, the Jewish Community Centre for London. From me, Jason Solomons, and my producer, Sarah Peters. Goodbye. Shalom, shalom.